Hi, this is Steve Blaze of Louis Axe, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another edition of Focus on Metal. And so why is uh, Steve Blaze up front on this week's episode? Not because we're having anything with Lillian Axe on. Well, maybe a teeny little bit of Lillian Axe mentioned way, way in there. Not that we have Steve on, but actually because Steve is one of the guys that uh, gives a quote about how great the book is by this week's guest. And uh, we're talking about Metal Mike. He's on board this week to talk about A Hair Metal Journey. This is a book that came out back in October, and uh, Richie reached out, I guess. It was kind of was a surprise to me, and got Metal Mike on board to talk about all kinds of stuff. In particular, Richie threw him a curveball, and I would say it's ultra curveball because Metal Mike, besides being an author, is also the host of the 80s Glam Metal cast, so steeped in 80s hair metal, and Richie decided to talk to him about uh, the uh, top 10 hair metal bands from the 90s, because uh, why would Richie do anything different, right? But, you know, the main thing is also to let everybody know that Metal Mike did put out this great book called A Hair Metal Journey, and he's talking about all the classic stuff that happened back in the 80s and talking about stories or having stories from those bands and then also syncing those up to his own you know teenage years and going and, and growing along and bringing these bands into his life and all of that good stuff so it's pretty good you get mike's story and you get stuff from all kinds of other bands as well so you can pick that up at amazon or a lot of other places that you can buy books it also comes in a kindle edition if you like and that kind of stuff and of course, it goes without saying, but fuck, I'm going to say it anyways. If you, uh, you know, you like what Mike has to say, you're into this kind of stuff, you're looking for some more podcast content, then definitely check out the 80s Glam Metal Cast. And yeah, I know the audio sounds probably a little bit weird this week. Um, I'm not quite sure. Well, I know what's happening, and that's that I replaced a whole bunch of cables in the studio rack over the weekend, and then. I really didn't test out anything, figuring I've got it on, no problem. And uh, then I go to record this, and I'm getting weirdness. So I know there's some raspiness and some little crispiness that's in here that normally isn't, and I'll have to track that down. But that's why the audio sounds a little bit weird right now. I actually have a feeling that the way I've got this set up and the way I got it to work for today is I'm working through Richie's channel on the board because I think something's screwed up with mine. But anyways, just apologies for the sound quality. And with that, I'm going to kick it over to Richie and Metal Mike. Hello, this is Mike. Hey, Mike, it's Richie. How you doing? Hey, Richie, how you doing, buddy? I'm okay. So there was a list that was put up on uh, on Loudwire about a week ago. Uh-huh. And um, they listed the 10 best hair metal albums of the 90s. So I figured that we'd go through each of those albums one by one and you we can share our thoughts on them. And if you want to talk about the, some of the band's previous albums that were in the 80s when they were in their heyday, we can do that as well. And then I think as we're, do, as we're going through the bands and having a conversation, 
in the end I wrote down a couple that weren't on their list from the 90s and maybe you'll come up with a couple as well that you might want to mention and we'll, we'll just do the interview that way. Oh, that sounds good, man. Yeah, yeah. The first album they listed in the, the 10 best hair metal albums of the 90s was Hardline's Double Eclipse that came out in 1992. What do you think of that album? You know, it's weird. I, I definitely didn't think much of it when it came out. I was aware of, of Hot Sherry. I'll say it right. Hot, hot Sherry. And, uh, you know, I thought that was pretty cool. But um, I, I think in 92, I was kind of moving away from some of that stuff. You know what I mean? So, okay, I wasn't really familiar with that album. Uh, one of my friends that I do the podcast, or my podcast with Ryan, he's really into this album. So, like, he's made me listen to it. And, and I, it has grown on me. I, I think it's pretty good. But I'll be honest, it didn't really catch my attention when it was out. Mm-hmm. How about you? Um, I like it, but I do remember the reviews. And bear in mind now where I'm coming from. I I wasn't reading Circus or or Rip or any of the American magazines much. I was Kerrang Metal Hammer. Uh. Um, and I do remember Kerrang reviewing this, and they weren't very high on the vocalist. They were comparing Johnny Gioelli with uh, you know, the vocalist that Neil Sean had worked with before. Um, John Waite and of course Steve Perry and they weren't even putting him in the same league and they I think they were they felt that the album was very formulaic hard rock you know and and in 92 it was kind of you know it was it was kind of dead in the water when it came out really yeah no definitely like I said it just I think the stuff that I was getting into at this point was a little bit heavier so I think it was just wasn't hitting my radar at all <laughs> I think it's a strong record but I much prefer bad English, and um, uh-huh. I think th- there's a lot more cliches I think in this one than there is on on, on the previous work that Neil, Neil had done, especially when it comes to lyrics, like you know, rhythm in a red car, and you know, life's a bitch and hot sherry, and yeah, you know, it, it's a good record. It's and it's a good sounding record as well. Yeah, probably would have fared better maybe coming out two years earlier. How many albums from the eight, how many albums can you say that about though? Like there was albums coming out <laughs> in the late eighties, and even the band members would tell me in interviews if that had to come out in the mid eighties, we would have you know we would have sold millions. But you know that's the look of the draw. That's right, man. Dude, it's uh, same thing. I, I've had so many bands come on my podcast and artists and say the same thing. If we just could have took the dial and instead of. The first album coming out in 87, if it could have came out in 85, then our careers would have lasted you know, a little bit longer. I mean, everybody tells the same story. So. Yeah, I think the, the one guy that stands out to me who said that is uh, Paul Shartino about the Rough Cut record. Um, sure. That If that had come out around the time of, you know, um, The Last in Line, rather than coming out, I think, a couple of years later, they would have been, you know, because at that stage, the market was saturated with bands like that. Um, you had oh. you had Rad and you had Tesla and you had, um, who else was it? Motley Crue and all these other bands. Whereas Rough Cut kind of predated that some of those bands a little bit. But I oh. I digress. Uh, let Let's go on to uh, the second album they have on the list is Saigon Kicks the Lizard that came out in nineteen ninety two. I like it, man. I, I I bought the first Saigon Kick album and I thought that was great. And I I think the Lizard kind of took it to the next level you know because and they were one of those weird bands where like they 
they weren't really hair metal, but they were kind of getting grouped into that stuff. I think mostly on this album because of Love Is On The Way, but I mean, Hostile Youth and, and some of those songs, you know what I mean? It, it was edgy. And it had like elements of like Jane's addiction and and, and some of that like the, the more alternative heavy type stuff. So it really wasn't normal, you know what I mean? It was it was cool. It was kind of like where the genre could go. And I actually really didn't like the album that follows this. Water I thought was really good too. So so I got kicks one of those cool bands, man. They they could do a lot of different kinds of things. Had like Beatles influences and and a lot of just cool stuff that came into their sound. But for some reason, like I said, they just got grouped into the hair model thing and then it was also kind of over for them you know as the 90s were rolling on yeah i i think mike that they were too varied for their own good um, yeah yeah they, yeah. they, they kind of straddled all the genres when they, they could i think they could have been a little bit more specific with, with their sound um i'm all for experimentation but when you listen to the likes of Water, you bring up that came out, I think, in 93. Like, that's all over the map. Um, yeah. And you, I don't think you're going to get fans that are going to love all of their all of their styles of music. Um, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of the band. I remember Jason Beeler, I think, around the time of uh, the, the debut album, they had him in Kerrang! And he said that when his favourite artist was, uh, at the time, one of them, and he was Prince. And you know Prince did everything when it came to music, and if that's his favorite artist, that's where Saigon Kick went just a little bit heavier. Yeah, yeah. You know another artist that comes to mind that does the same thing, uh, same exact thing is Queen. Queen will give you an album of thrush seventies. You know what I mean? Metal, um, dance. You know, <laughs> it's just, you know ballads, uh, orchestra, blues. So I, I feel like there's some Queen in uh, what they do too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But uh, a great band who are um, who are going back out on tour this year without Matt Kramer. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. going to celebrate this album, I think. So yeah, it's great. The, wa- the water record. The water, yeah. The water. Yeah. Yep. yep. Now the third one, uh, Warren Dog Eats Dog, Dog Eat Dog '92. Oh, love it, man! I love it. I, I mean, it's possibly their best. You know, I, I, I'm always talking about this album on the podcast. I know I had Joey Allen on, and, and he's a big fan of this album. He kind of says this is the time where they were able to really let loose and be themselves. But, you know, uh, it's just it's just great, man. It's like it's like heavy warrant, it's a deeper warrant, uh, pretty thought-provoking stuff. Man, when you get to like April 2031, all my bridges are burning, a bitter pill. Uh, it's, it's great, man. He's it, a great, uh, Janie was so great. Uh, our vocals, the lyrics, is the whole thing. I, I love it, man. I love it. Yeah, it's their best record. Um, hands yeah. down. Um, heavy, dark. Um, Hole in my walls. Great song. Um, totally. Very varied, more serious. Um, but nobody paid any attention to it, and it was a pity. No. Yeah, but again, you know, if, if, if you know, we'll do the classic, right? If Warren came out in 87 and, and this album would have came out in 90, you know, but uh, one thing I want to say that always, always comes to mind with this album, it's the song Andy Warhol was right. And it's such a cool song. And I always say, like, if, if this song could have been done by another band with the right video, like somebody like maybe Collective Soul or something like that, this could have been a huge hit because it's really a, a smart concept. It's it's an interesting song. But I think what happened, kind of what you're saying, that you're, you're Warren. 
you were the cherry pie guys. Now it's hard for somebody to take you seriously. Uh, it's unfair because a lot of bands do get to evolve. The Beatles and many others, you know, they were they started off as kind of you know poppy, and then they went into all these different realms, you know. And the hair bands never got to do that. And I always look at that as a big a big tragedy of, of the genre. Mm. And one of the bands they got the tour with on this in Europe was Iron Maiden. I don't know whether you're aware of that. Um, oh, that's wild! Wow. Yeah. And there was one bill, I believe it was in Italy, and it had Maiden headlining, Black Sabbath with Ronnie James Dio. I think Testament were on the bill, Slayer, I think were on the bill, and Warrant. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I've seen those videos. I think Pantera's there too, because yeah. you see the guys in Pantera like hanging up on the side of the stage and stuff. So yeah. That was like Monsters of Rock or something in Italy or something like that. Yeah, pretty wild lineup. And and Warren, they did a good job. The crowd was really digging, I think, what they were doing. It's funny, you see Janie Lane at a flannel <laughs> in that video, if I'm thinking of the same one. So, you know, times were changing. It's it what it is. Yeah. Now, the fourth record they have down um, is Danger, Danger, Screw It from 1991. Oh, man. I'll be honest. I, I thought the debut was decent, and then I completely checked out. Like I, I, I always had people come on my podcast, uh, especially I don't know if you know Rob Wild from uh, Midnight City, and he was in Tiger Tales and stuff. He he loves this album, right? For me, I, I just I've tried. I, I can't get into it. You know, like this monkey business and all this stuff. It, to me, it was just me. Once again, I hate to keep saying the same thing. Maybe this would have worked. A couple of years earlier, but I think at this point you're just you're you're barking up the wrong tree. You're just kind of playing that '80s goofy stuff, like cherry pie type stuff. And we're in a different era where you need to be, like I said. Even though, let's face it, right? Warrant didn't do any better with Doggy Dog than Screw It, you know, for Danger Danger. So for me, man, I never got into this one. But I'm curious to see what you you say about it. <laughs> well, Andy Timmons is a fabulous guitar player. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, but what, what I, I remember I put up on the show's Facebook page that I was listening to this record and after listening to it, I realised why the genre had to die. And of course, <laughs> I, got, I got a lot of blowback on that. And what I, there was, there's some good songs on this. I like some of the songs, but it is so cliched. Right. Um, you know, you've got the power ballad, you've got, you know, like Slifter, the big one. I'm like... You know, David Coverdale no. was doing that, you know, 10 years before. And he, this. Right. And then it had, like, the, the, the little bit of rap on it and, you know, the instrumental on it. And it, it and then it had, uh, like, this, yeah, some of it, some of it, some of it I like. But when I put it on, I'm like, yeah, heard that song before, disbanded it. Yep, heard that song before, disbanded it. Yeah. You know, there's nothing, nothing original on this at all. And, but there's people that love this album and they really went after me about it. And I said, look, I, li- I like some of the songs on it, but I'll stand by what I said. You know, people blame grunge for killing hair metal. And it's like the genre killed itself because it was oversaturated with with songs like this. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Oh, we're on the same page with that one. <laughs> yeah. So here, the next one, I I know the band. I don't. I probably only heard one or two songs by them, um. So I really have nothing to say on this record. But I'll actually have to go and check it out now. Uh, Roxy Blue wants some from nineteen ninety two. 
you know, like this, this is hit or miss for me, man, because this, like I said, I was starting, I think, you know, as much as I'm a hair model guy and wrote a book about hair model, um, even I was getting sick of some of this stuff and I wasn't feeling it. And, and I remember these guys coming out, they had like a Van Halen-ish type of vibe. Um, but to me, it was the same thing, what we just said with the, with that second Danger Danger album, I didn't think Roxy Blue were breaking any new ground, didn't catch my radar. Didn't care about it. No, I, I didn't get into this album at all. I do remember them being out, and I remember just thinking same thing. Like it, this is this stuff is kind of past, and they're trying to do that old style that would have worked maybe two, three years ago. But yeah, no, that album didn't do anything for me. Mm. And the next one is another one where I don't. I, I know the name. I think I've heard a couple of songs over the years, but this is an album that I, I don't think I've ever heard. Is uh, Spread Eagles open to the public? And again, that's nineteen ninety two. Yeah, that's another one. I, I you know, you, you, it's funny because you talked about how some people were after you on the Screw It album. I know, I know people that really swear by this. Album. I'm familiar with the first Spread Eagle, uh, and I'm not saying that this one is bad or, or good. I, I just don't really know. I, I said totally missed my radar, and nope, I don't really know much about it. <laughs> mm. The next one I have a lot to say about uh, Winger's Pull from 1993. What's your thoughts on that one? Amazing, amazing album. It just, you know, it just poor timing for Winger. But I, you know, this is it's kind of like this. I, you know, it's funny because we're we're kind of looking at two different kinds of albums as we go through all these. There's these albums where the bands are totally oblivious to the trend changes and they're just making the same kind of albums, and, and that's kind of like the way the Screw It was. Paul, totally different. Like Winger is is getting heavier. Lyrics are a little bit deeper. Like, I love, like, Blind Revolution Mad. I love Down Incognito, uh, Junkyard Dog, Spell Them Under. I-, I think this is great. This is exactly where Winger needed to go. It's just the public just wasn't following them. That- that's the sad part, but a great album. Mm. I don't think Winger could have made pull with Bow Hill. No. No. Have you? How many of the guys in Winger have you interviewed about this record? I I've never had... Oh. I, okay, the only guy in Winger that I've ever had on the podcast is Paul Taylor, and he wasn't on this album. So I'd, I'd love to talk about Paul with the guys in Winger. I would love to. Yeah, I, I, the only guy in Winger I've never spoken to about this record is or interviewed at all is Paul Taylor. So I've interviewed oh, wow. I've interviewed Rod Kip, actually Kip in person, and uh, and Reb, and they all speak so highly of Mike Shipley. You wouldn't believe, like Kip regards Mike Shipley when it comes to actually recording bands as God. Um, wow. He said he learned so much from Mike about Mike, you know, from where, where to place Mike's in the studio, um, capturing sounds. He said he's never been with someone with, with an ear like him, that he just picks up on anything. And uh, Reb said to me that this album was a ball buster to do. Because he'd start playing and Mike would say, you're, you're rushing. He'd, he'd just know straight away, you're rushing, you're, you're dragging, you're rushing, you're dragging. And he said he was, like, he was really, really tough on him in the studio. And the same with Rod. And you'd think now Rod, being the, you know, the virtuoso that he is, uh, Mike was picking up on stuff Rod was doing. And Rod was saying, no, I don't do that. And he'd bring him in and he'd say, listen back to this. And Rod would go, oh, my God, I never thought I did that with the drums. Yeah. Wow, that's but, cool. And that's that, great. I think that's why that album is an amazing sounding record as well. Um, yeah. 
you know, you had Mike coming from like Def Leppard, um, and then he he works on this record. But you know that that album, uh, I hate to say it, but in '93 was dead in the water. It it didn't matter how good it was, how good it sounded. Nobody was going to push that, especially MTV. Yeah, and you know the sad part, you know, you're kind of touching on something, and it's not only just the producer, but it, you look at just in general sound production with the technology was just getting better. So these albums from like 91, 92, they sound way better, light years better than the eighties albums. But once again, who, but nobody got to hear, the, hear how great they sounded. Sad. Very sad. Mm. And this album, you, you put it on today and it still sounds fantastic. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Just the way it was recorded. Um, right. The next record um, is Damn Yankees debut album from 1990. <laughs> Wow, you know, I really liked this when it came out. I actually saw these guys live, they've opened up for Bad Company, uh, but it's been a while, man. I don't know what happened. Like, I just lost interest in this album, and I, I haven't heard it in, like, 20 years. So I, I definitely liked it when it came out, Coming of Age and Take Me Higher. I mean, that stuff, I remember it. But beyond those couple songs, man, I, it's it's been a hot minute since I've heard this album, man. I don't know, what do you think? Um, have you ever interviewed anybody in the band about it? No, because like I said, I, I just I just don't care. I, I still I don't know. This fell off my radar. I don't ever want to listen to it. So I guess I have had the need to talk about it because I just it's just kind of off my radar. It's yeah, weird. I I had um I'd Ron Nevison on, and okay, I think the probably the only reason he agreed to interview me. Well, I think it is anyway. But I asked him to come on and talk about Bad English and Damn Yankees. Because they were the two super groups at the end of the 80s, early 90s. And with Ron, I think everyone wants to talk to him about Ozzy and Hart and uh-huh. Kiss. And yes. I, don't, I don't think he was probably asked a lot about Bad English or, uh, or Damn Yankees. But one of the things he told me about Damn Yankees was uh, the, Ted Nugent's um, approach to the record that Ted kind of felt that he was doing everybody a favor doing it. That's what Ron said to me. That, like Tommy and and Jack and 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 um, oh, what's the drummer's name? Is it Tommy as well? Cartelloni. Um, I can't oh, remember yeah. his name. But he yeah, said yeah. they were Michael. They, Michael. Michael. Yeah, Michael. Yeah. So they were all super into the record, but it was hard to get Ted invested in it. Because Ted kind of felt he was above all of it, that he was doing them a favor oh. by playing on the record. Wow! And, and he said it didn't change for Don't Tread either. Even after this one sold millions, he said he had exactly the same attitude. Weird. Yeah. Because I kind of looked at Ted's career was kind of dead. Oh, it was before this album. That, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah, but you look at Ted's albums in the eighties, um, and I like some of them, but like Penetrator didn't set the world afire, and either did uh, Little Miss Dangerous or. Um, if you can't lick them, like none, none, they were all on ma- on a major label, but none of them really went platinum or multi platinum. Hmm. Um. The next record, I'm sure you have an, an opinion on this one. Uh, debut Firehouse record, 1990. Wow. So, I got mixed feelings on the first Fire Firehouse album. I I think it's good, but I think you know when you when you were making the point earlier about you know, this kind of killed the genre, you know, I think, I think Firehouse could take some responsibility because it, it's a new decade. It's 1990. 
you know, it is time to kind of like take what was done in the 80s and take it to the next level. And as much as it's a great sounding album, the musicianship, the song, it's all there. But when you, I think the song for me that I like it, but I realize that it like, it, it's not moving the genre forward. It's don't treat me bad. It's so bubblegum. It's so pop. You know what I mean? And it's, you know, love of a lifetime. So I think if, and I, I had Bill Leverty on the podcast and he even said, you know, I wish we would have focused on some of those heavier songs like Ought to Be a Law and Home is Where the Heart Is and stuff like that. But instead, they put out Don't Treat Me Bad and Love of a Lifetime. Now, it sold really well. I mean, I think it sold a couple million copies. But I think it fell into those cliches uh, from the 80s. And I don't think it helped the genre long term. But it, I, I don't mind it. It's, it's a decent album. Yeah, I think it's a good sounding record. I think David Prater did that. I think he did Images and Words or just... Uh just after that, uh, Dream Theater's one after this one. Um, I think you bring up a point there that other musicians have told me as well. They'll go in with a vision on a, on, a, on an album and what they want it to sound like. And it's all a compromise between the, the band and the producer and the label. None yep. of them really, I, I think, ever get what they, what they, what they want. Um, I think some, some, the band gets some of what they want and then the producer gets some of what he wants depending on if, how, how much they're butting heads with the band. And then you have the label coming in. Like the example I'll give is, um, you know, Wingers in the, heart, in the Heart of the Young. That album was done and handed in. And then the label yep. refused to release it because there was no singles on it. And they, yep. that's when Kip and Reb had to go and write Easy Come, Easy Go and Can't Get Enough. So, you're, you know, you're dealing with that kind of, you know, dichotomy with, amongst all the, all the, the parties and... I think, you know, another example would be like Europe. Like you're a big Europe fan, right? Um, yeah. I interviewed Key about Prisoners in Paradise. And he said that album was originally intended to be a lot heavier. And then the label got involved and it ended up being a lot poppier and there was songs taken off it. So that happened all yeah. the time around then. Totally. You know, and that's funny you say that because that's what I got into when I did the book. I, I, I was putting everybody's stories together and it's like the same story. And, and those two are exactly that you just told are in the book. Uh, I would talk about how in the heart of the young had to be changed around and how prisoners in paradise had to be changed around. So that yeah, you're right. It's a common thing. But one other thought when we when I think back to don't treat me bad, it makes me think of cherry pie. And I, I, I feel like it's so weird because like 90, we're still in the eighties, right? So you could do cherry pie and you could do don't treat me bad and you're going to get a hit. But the following year, right? We know grunge is coming. The music scene's changing. And now what are the two songs that you're going to look back and you're going to say, this stuff is soft. This stuff is cheesy. And, and it was those songs. And then in turn, that's why you can't, people couldn't take dog eat dog seriously. And they're not going to take the second firehouse album seriously because these guys were coming across as too soft, I think. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I said, I can, de- I can deal with those songs. I like them. But when you think about what's coming in, in 91 and 92, that stuff's going to just kind of tar- target you. You know what I mean? And you're kind of tainted uh, for what you did the year before. So it's tough. Yeah. And like, but one anomaly for that with me, you bring like we're talking about Firehouse, I, I had Bill on about when we talked about the, the third record that came out, I think it was in 94. And uh, he said the label didn't really put their fingers in that at all. And I'm like, really? And he said, yeah, we just went in. We had the songs. The label went, okay, just record the songs. I think they got Ron Nevison to do it. And, uh, of course, the album didn't sell anything. But uh, 
You know, the label weren't pushing them to, you know, you got to cut your hair. And even though they actually did do that a little bit, when you look at the pictures, they got the flannels and, you know, they cut their hair a little yeah. bit. But when it came yeah. to the actual songs themselves, they weren't that far removed from uh, from Hold Your Fire or the debut. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they had, even though that album didn't sound great, I want to say there was one song that, that did okay. Was it like I Live My Life For You or something like that? Yeah, there was yeah, one the, song the, the ballad. That, that did okay. Yeah, the did all right, which is unusual, you know, because like I said, those bands were done at that point. To even get any kind of radio play was crazy. Mm, like when when you fast forward a couple of years after that, I think the big ballad that came out was uh, Journey's one off Trial by Fire. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, I think the, the main reason for that was that, you know, it was Steve Perry the band were back together and but that got radio airplay i think because it was journey like they, they were massive in the in the 80s and the late 70s uh-huh. um so number 10 um and i definitely have an opinion on this one is uh poison's native tongue from 1993 oh i love it man i love native tongue it's it's one of those ones where it's polarizing right you know i mean who knows when you start talking about it you might say that you hate it but um you know either people love it or hate it you know poison definitely change but i think on the the same token it it feels like it's an evolution right you listen to flesh and blood and it is a little bit bluesier and the musicianship has gotten better the lyrics are a little bit deeper so I, i don't think it's a total stretch when you get to this album i mean did they lose a lot of the fun of poison maybe but some of it's there. You know, you got songs like Body Talk and, and stuff like that that's not too far off from what Poison does. And I love Seven Days Over You, and I love Fire uh, and Ice until, until You Suffer Some. I think that's one of their cool, one of the coolest ballads that they have and one of the best songs on the album. So Blind Faith, man, I'm, I'm into it, as you can tell. What do you think? <laughs> uh, it's my favorite Poison record. Um, nice. All right. The, the first two records I bought in... 80, I think it was early 87, I was just turned 16 and I was living in Waterford in Southern Ireland and a town of 50,000 people. So if I really wanted to buy anything, I kind of had to travel to get it. And they had this specialised rock and metal shop in Dublin called Sound Cellar. And my mates used to go up there who were, they were a year or two older than me. So a lot of what I listened to was kind of on what they said was good and what was bad. Like they were, they'd been into it a year or two before me. So like, Richie, if you really want to get into it, this is the band to, to follow. Like they got me into Maiden and then they said, you got to listen to this band called Rash. And then you got to listen, you know, to Black Sabbath and all these bands. And I remember going up to Dublin and the first two albums I bought with my own money. And I actually still have the vinyl copies uh, were Night Songs and Look What The Cat Dragged In. And um, so I, they have a that, those two bands kind of have a special place with me. Um, the second Poison record, very poppy, Tom Werman, you know, bubblegum rock, uh, Flesh and Blood, definitely more serious. Um, but this record blew me away when I heard it. Um, I it, I think it, it is a little bit too long. I think it had 15 yeah. or 14 or 15 songs on it. You're getting into the CD age where... You, you were getting albums that were an hour, you know, 70 minutes, like Tesla, I think, were doing 70-minute records. And then you have Metallica were really pushing it, I think, when they did Load. I think that that, that was nearly 75 minutes long, that it was like, qu- you know, quantity over quality. Um, yeah. But 
I think Richie Zito did this record. He did a fantastic job producing it. And I've always been a Richie Cotson fan. Um, I just think he's an amazing artist. Um, but when I bring this record up, people always comment on him and Ricky Rocket, you know, with, with his oh, girlfriend yeah. or yeah. fiance. That they, they just yeah. keep bringing that up all the time. And uh, I don't. This album didn't really do anything, did it? I think it might have gone gold. But, gold, yeah. Yeah, but I think Flesh and Blood, I think, went like four or five times platinum. Yeah, it was a big drop-off, but man, great album. Yeah, and then, of course, the next album they did after this didn't even get released at the time, Crack a Smile. I think oh. it came out a few years after it was recorded. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good, though. It's good. No, it is a good album. So that's the ten that they have. Um, so I listed another five. And I'll mention the five of them. I'm just going to mention the five, and then you you can talk about any of the ones that you want out of the five. And then if you can think of any yourself from the 90s that aren't in my five or aren't in that 10, feel free to mention them. So the five I think they left off the list uh, was Extremes Three Sides, um, Dawkins Dysfunctional, uh, Manic Eden's one and only album in 94, uh, Def Leppard's Euphoria and Whitesnake's Restless Heart and the reason I'm picking some of these records they're they're later in the 90s when you look at the list that Loudwire did I think the latest one is 93 so they've completely ignored anything that was released after that Gotcha um, I think I think you mentioned some good ones you know for me I'm not a huge Def Leppard guy but I always thought Euphoria was a strong record um, it was kind of like a back form for Def Leppard. So, yeah, that's a great one. Uh, there was another one that you said that, that stuck out to me. Um, Extreme, Three Sides to Every Story. That, that's a great one. Probably for me, if I think back to some of the 90s ones that maybe we missed or, or they didn't hit any list, uh, I think Kiss Revenge is an amazing 90s yeah. album. Yeah. I was surprised that didn't hit some lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, Britney uh, Fox's Bite Down Hard. Yeah. It's a great, great mm-hmm. album. Uh, so th- those are two that you know. Oh, White Snake! You said White Snake Russell Star. That's an interesting one because it's pretty mellow. <laughs> uh, Coverdale Page is is great. I, I love Coverdale Page that album. So that that's a that was ninety three. I'm a big Lillian Ass guy, so I would definitely always have Poetic Justice and Psycho Schizophrenia by Lillian Ass. I love those albums. But those are those are two that stand out to me. The Motley Crue ninety four album. Is a, is a good one. That's my, Alice Cooper's. That, that's my favorite Motley album. Nice, nice. Alice Cooper's uh, The Last Temptation is a great album uh, yeah. from the 90s. Uh, I, I like Dysfunctional that you put on their docking. I've got a whole playlist that uh, I call, I think it's like um, Time for Change, you know, or something like that. And I, and I put all the 90s albums by bands. Oh, last one I'm going to say, which is a, I think is a shame. It wasn't on the five of yours, they're on theirs. Vince Neil exposed, love it. Yeah, ninety three, I think, with with Steve Stevens. Yeah, Steve Stevens. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's another one of those ones. I'm going to be honest. It's like a. It's a strange album because some of it goes right down to the most stereotypical hair metal cheese, right? You know, like some of it, like you know, um, Sister of Pain and all this stuff. But then there's some really off the wall, kind of like heavier stuff that's pretty unique, like The Edge. Look in her eyes. Living is a luxury. Can't change me. So there's some. He's got a real weird mix of music on that album. Some of it's totally cornball. And I can't take it. And then some of it I feel like is better than 
like what was on Dr. Feelgood. So, and then Steve Stevens, man, whoa, whoa, what a, what a player. Yeah, I love that um, Atomic Playboys record he did. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Song. So yeah, it, it's you know, there's so many there, you know, and, and like I said, it, it, it's kind of like the dark period of, of hair model. You know what I mean? It's people forget about it because uh, they're so like you, you know, like you're saying, they're so focused on you know, everybody's focused on look what the cat dragged in and, and nice songs and and they're great albums. I, they were the first some of the first albums I ever bought too. But those '90s albums, the production got better. Some of the bands were really, you know, experimenting and trying different things. There's there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the nineties. I've often wondered with bands in the nineties, though, were they experimenting because they wanted to, or they felt that they had to? Like, how how do you feel about, you know, how did you feel at the time when you know you heard Doc and Shadow Life or or Scorpions Eye to Eye? You know, where they completely yeah. where they completely jumped the shark and went, okay, what's trendy now? And we're going to try. Yeah. We're going to try and get this new fan base, but we're actually not going to get any of them and completely alienate our existing fan base. Yeah, you know, right? No, you can look at it two, a couple different ways. So, partly, some of it, it's like, okay, I'm my mind is going to, like I want to hear something different. So, like my bands are are kind of trying to do the same thing. So, I think I'm with some of them, and, and I think some of the ones that you and I we pretty much connected on almost every one. I was on the same page with the bands, right? But then other ones, I wasn't. You know, like I said, if Danger Danger is just going to come out and put out like a really, you know, stereotypical hair metal album in 91, like I couldn't go along with that. Real quick, a couple things I think that happened, I'm sure you'll probably agree with this. There was a couple things that were, were nudging these bands to get heavier. The first things that were happening was in 1990 with um, uh, Alice in Chains facelift. Mm-hmm. And with pa- Pantera's Cowboys from Hell, right there, I think that was the warning shot to let people know, like, okay, things are starting to change. You can't come out again with with cherry pie. <laughs> you know, you, you've got to you've got to get more badass. You know, so that's why I think when I think those things happen, then I think you saw hair metal get heavier. Like Kiss, same thing. Kiss knew they can't do Hot in the Shade Part Two. They, you know, people were gravitating to the seventies Kiss and the Creatures of the Night and stuff like that. So they needed to go back to that heavier sound. And then the next thing that happens is is the Black Album, which totally changed and, and kicked all, all metal in the ass, right? And then the next thing is Nirvana, you know what I mean? So, so there was all these, it was almost like major shifts happening like within, like every six months there was this thing happening that would, would change what was going on in music. So I think it's a volatile time, but you make a great point. Was it from the heart? Or was some label guy saying, "Hey guys, we, we can't do the the typical album. We need to be grunge, or we need to be you know thrash, or whatever it is." So yeah, you wonder how much of it was genuine, definitely. So like you've written a book on on hair metal, right? Your journey through hair metal, and mm-hmm. then you said you got into the heavier stuff. So so you're going from the hair metal genre to the heavier stuff, and then mm-hmm. you, you, I don't know if you how big into grunge you got, but was there one genre that that came out that you just went oh i'm done i'm okay with what i what i have now i i, I like what <laughs> i like um because i i can name mine personally but I'm, I'm just curious to see where where your journey really stopped where you just where you, you, know, you de- where you decided like okay. i like what i like now i know what i like and i just I'm, I'm not going down this path with these bands now the newer bands i think my journey ended with uh new metal uh rap 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 metal and stuff like that so limp biscuit and corn that was like there was no way grunge 
I, I like Nirvana. I, I thought I think In Utero is a great album. That's probably one of my favorite ones by Nirvana. I like Alice in Chains. I mean, I think between Facelift and Dirt, great albums. Soundgarden put out some decent stuff. So there, were, I, I was on board with some of that. I wasn't saying that I liked it as much as Hair Model, but I but I didn't mind it. Didn't mind the industrial stuff. I think Nine Inch Nails is, is very cool, uh, and some of that kind of stuff I was okay with. But I think that's yeah. Rich, I think I had to draw the line and corn, and, and that I was done. I just, I don't know why. I just, it was, I, I couldn't listen to it. I think at that point I was getting older, and I was gravitating. You know, in the early two thousands, when some of that stuff was big, I was gravitating back to my eighties hair model. So that, that I was done. How about you? Same and this exactly the same. But one thing I will say that's a little bit different with, with me is a lot of these bands like Corn and Disturbed and Limp Biscuit, they were getting played on the radio over here. Back where I was living, they weren't played on the radio at all, really. Um, uh-huh. It was only specialist rock stations. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's still the same. You had all these bands here in the 80s, like Motley Crue and, you know, Winger and, you know, Firehouse and, and you know, Multi-Platinum Acts weren't. They weren't played on the radio at all in Ireland or England when I was growing up. Um, and they were, yeah, I'm, I'm serious. So they were mainstream here, but they were really were in a lot of ways underground where I was living. Um, Iron Maiden wasn't played on the radio. The, the, the rock bands that were played on the radio when I was, when I was growing up was, that were new was Bon Jovi and Europe. Huh. And it was the final countdown and stuff off New Jersey and Slippery When Wet. And if you mentioned any of the other you know, hair metal bands at the time did look at you like, who? And they'd be multi-platinum over here. Huh. Yeah. I, I think for me, what I can say is I think there was a fine line between MTV and radio. So I I was never, I mean, to this day, and even when I was a kid, I never got big into radio. I mean, I think radio around in America, in, in, like in New York where I live, yeah, of course, they would play Bon Jovi and Poison and Motley Crue and stuff like that. But, MTV was where I was getting the real stuff, like Headbangers Ball. You know what I mean? I was that's how I was hearing bands like Keel and Bang Tango and Vane and Babylon AD and all that stuff. You know what I mean? Like I got into all those like you know more obscure hair model bands because of Headbangers Ball and MTV, not because of radio. Radio only here they would play some hair model, but it would only be the big guys. You never heard any of those other bands. But you would have had the hair metal videos on the regular shows, not not just Headbangers Ball, right? Yeah, because you're right. Yeah, they would play some of that stuff, you know, during the regular hours and, and like, yeah, at different times. But I think Headbangers Ball is where, that, you know, that's, that really was the only place you were going to see Keel and Badlands and stuff like that. That was where, That's where you were going to see most of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because I just remember discovering a lot of this stuff uh, through Word of Mouth, Kerrang! magazine. Uh-huh. I couldn't find the videos. They, right. just weren't, they weren't playing them, you know. Headbangers Ball might play some of them, but you know, there'd be bands over here massive, and that's why a lot of the American bands they kind of they were shocked, I think, when they went to Europe because there were a lot of people over here were kissing their ass, they were selling a load of records, and when they came to Europe to play, um, it was like, okay, you need to impress me, we're just not going to bow down and say you're, you're fantastic. and a lot of them got a reality check because of it. I know, and I know because some of the band members have told me. Uh-huh. Uh, 
they went from playing arenas over here and then they'd be opening up for some band in a club, slogging it through Europe for like six or eight weeks, wondering why the fuck are we over here? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it was diff- It was a different world. No, I've heard that from a lots of, lot of people, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. So can you think of any other 90s albums? I, the House of Lords, Demons Down would be another one for me. That's a strong you know, album. G- give me two seconds here. Let me let me pop up my uh, Mr. My Big, Mr. Big's uh, Bump Ahead or um, Hey Man are strong records. They're both mid nineties. So so my playlist is called Time for Change. Eighties metal <laughs> bands. Eighties metal bands in the nineties. Okay, so let's see what we miss. Okay, we definitely miss uh, Cinderella's. Still climbing, yeah. Yep, that that one, yes, that's a good one. It is. Um, my, I, you might not agree with me, but I, I actually, I, I'm a Motley, I'm a sucker for Motley Crue, and I actually like Generation Swine. No. So I see some, no, <laughs> you, you can't. You, you're not going to join me. Okay, it's no. okay. Um, I I'm a big fan of Dio's Strange Highways. I think that's a great album. Um, that's t- from the '90s. I'll, I'll tell you something about Strange Highways. Um. When I started doing the show, I'm doing the show about 12 years. So when I decided to hit up Tracy G and ask him about Strange Highways, and I ended up interviewing everyone. Of course, Ronnie had died. I interviewed everybody in, who played on that record, plus some of the artists that supported Dio on that tour, including Mike Tramp and a band called... Oh, I'm drawing a brain fart here now. Um, they're an American band. Oh, shit. I'll have to text you. That would be Atomic Opera. The, the name of them. But I interviewed them. And Dio's management got wind that I was doing it and actually set me up with Scott Warren to do it. So I think I... And I, and I, and I, and I interviewed Mike Frazier, who produced it. I think I did eight episodes. So I did Tracy G, Jeff Pilson... Vinnie Apathy, Scott Warren, and then some of the support acts guys and Mike Frazier, all on all on that one album, and it was amazing. I couldn't believe they all said yes, and they all did, and the, the, they all talked in glowing terms about Ronnie as a person. I, mean, uh-huh. just, I, I got some amazing stories, and Strange Highways is my favorite Dio record, and that's one of the reasons I I tried to do it. Um, so when uh-huh. you bring up Strange Highways there, you see, I wouldn't call that a hair metal record. That's probably no. why I didn't put it in the list. But as an album right. goes, it, it's an amazing piece of work. For those interested in digging into that whole Strange Highways project that is available up online at focusonmetalpod.com. And from the main page, click down to the projects menu. You'll see one called Strange Highways. And that will take you to a page that will give you access to all of the episodes of the Strange Highways project. It starts with uh, Exit 1, which is a talk with Jeff Pilson. Exit 2 is with Tracy G. Exit 3 is Vinnie Apice. Get the whole thing. Highways, exits. Um, Exit 4 is Mike Frazier. And number 5 is one Richie talked about with Scott Warren. And then 6 was with Jerry Best. Seven is the aforementioned one with Atomic Opera, and we wrapped it up 
with Mike Tramp. So those ran um, in the fall of, of 2014. And again, you want to get those directly to your little metal ear holes. Go up to focusonmetalpod.com. On the main page, you'll see a projects menu. Click that. That'll open up. Scroll down to Strange Highways. Click that open, and you will see all of those. And while you're there, you can check out all the other projects that we've done. And uh, those are all listed right in that projects menu. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm with you. That's my favorite Dio album, too. Uh, but I'm, yeah, no, I wouldn't call it hair metal either, but I think I'm just like rattling off my 90s playlist. Bon Jovi did some decent stuff. I mean, he had some good success with Keep the Faith. Uh, These Days is, is pretty solid. Uh, that's another one I'm, I'm finding on my list. That would, even though he was out of the hair metal phase, I mean, Bon Jovi still falls under there. Uh, Dawkins Erase the Slate. I, I, that's great. Fabulous. Uh, 99, yeah. It, yeah, Ingve, you know, Ingve's borderline hair model. He had some solid albums in the nineties. Yeah, Eclipse. I can't. Had, I can't. Um, I can't. Yeah. I I can't do a lot of Ingve. I love Odyssey. No. I like Marching yep. Out. Um, I do like Eclipse, but after yep. after that, it's like who's singing? <laughs> you know, who's, oh, yeah, who's in the band? Who's out different. of the band? Um, it's always somebody different. Yeah, I all, the one issue I always had with Ingve is, you know, he there's nobody to edit him. So right. I I I don't think his albums are solid all the way through. I always felt that he needed someone to, uh, you know, to rein rein him in a little bit and say, "Look, you can't solo for two minutes here. Um, you have to have a song." And I, I felt that a lot of the, stu- the stuff he brought out was very samey. And now he now he does everything himself and he he sings. And I'm like, nah, I just can't do that no. anymore. No, no, no. Here's a real good. This is a hair metal album from from '92. That's great. Is uh, TNT uh, Realized Fantasies? Good that's record. That's a great one. Solid, yeah. Yep, that's a real good one. And and the last one I'm going to say, it's not hair metal, but it's probably one of my favorite album, metal albums of the '90s. Is Sabotage uh, Edge of Thorns? Love it. Love yeah, it. yeah. That that that's a solid. That's a solid album. Yeah. Uh, Zach Stevens, isn't it? That was the first one he mm-hmm. sang on. Yeah, that's, that's the first one he's saying. Yeah, yep. that, that's a good record. Like, there's bands that were lumped into the hair metal scene, and then, like Kings X are one of my favorite bands, and they right. they yep. released Ear Candy in '96, and that's my favorite record. But I, again, are they a hair metal? You know, it's I think it's more of a they came out in that time period, so they're called that, but they're not really a hair metal band. Um, but you know, they're they're I think think people just they just don't look hard enough when it comes to the bands releasing stuff in the 90s, that they're comfortable with what they have in the 80s. And I know some of the bands changed their sound, so I get why you wouldn't go after the the newer music, the 90s music. But uh-huh. if you look hard enough, there is some great stuff there. Like, But you brought in, you brought, bring up the, the Motley Crue 94 album. All I got to do is post about that. And it's there's no gray, there's no gray, there's no gray area there. It's either black no. or white. It's like it's Vince or nobody. Or in the other camp, it's the best thing they've ever done was with Karabi. Yep. And yeah. I'm sure you probably get that a lot as well when you say you love totally. the 94 album. It's like you're not a true fan. You probably get that one, do you? Oh, every, or they should have changed the name. Or, yeah. you know, Vin, Karabi's terrible. Vince is terrible. Yeah, I mean, it's just. It's it's a whole bunch of nonsense. One one thing you you, you make a good point. You feel like people stick to the '80s stuff and, and, and the, they don't know about the '90s stuff. The thing that happened, and I 
I get into this a little bit in the book because I I think after I hear everybody heard everyone's stories, I'm trying to figure out like, okay, what what really killed this, you know? And it's a whole bunch of things, right? We could get into it. We can go all by saying well, there's different elements of what killed this genre. Well, the fans are to blame too because what happened was is in the '80s it was easy, right? So it was on MTV. It was all over the music stores. It was all over. It was so you walked in and it was real simple. In the '90s, like if you weren't a true hardcore fan. You probably jumped to, to grunge or to country or to rap or something. You jumped to some other genre where, like, all of us guys, we stuck with it. It wasn't easy, right? You had to – maybe you had to order it, the album now, or you had to go to some smaller independent store to find it. But we stuck with it. Like I said, we – like, you and I talk about Strange Highways. We stuck with Dio. We, you know, we bought that album. Maybe that wasn't a huge uh, pr- promoted album, but we knew about it. So the true fans stayed – but the fake fans left, and I think that's where, 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 like I said, they were really engaged in the '80s. They know those albums, but they don't know that other stuff because they they just gave up. It was too it was too complicated for them to stick with it. You know what I mean? I think I think a lot of people, and I'm I'm being very general here, but I'm going to say it because musicians have said this to me, who were in bands that were big in the '80s. And they talked about the '90s, and um, when it comes to fans in the US they're definitely more fickle than they are in Europe um that the european fans tend to be more loyal that they'll stick with the band and i think one of the reasons they're more fickle over here is that they were played with all the pop acts so that a lot of the fans might actually like the band but they'd like different genres of music as well. And they were getting all of that in the, on the same shows or on the same radio stations. Where in Ireland and England and Europe, um, a lot of these bands that were big here, they were underground. So we had to find them. And they were, you know, we put the effort in. And if, when we put the effort in and they came over, uh, we remembered them. And they had a market when, it, when, when the shit hit the fan over here. They had a market in Europe to play in and they had a market in Japan to play in that didn't drop them. Um, and some bands uh, broke up because, you know, the market in Europe and the market in Japan couldn't sustain them for for income. But some of them stuck with it. And even now, when you look at some of the melodic rock bands, they go to Europe to do all their touring. They can't get a tour over here. They'll go there for like Y&T, for an, an, an example or the likes of Little Caesar, um, like they'll, they'll go tour in Europe for six or eight weeks and they might play one or two shows in the States a year. Um, and that's because we stuck with the bands over there. And I think the fa- a lot of the fans over here just dropped them because, you know, MTV said they weren't cool anymore, so I'm not going to listen to them anymore. Yeah, that's true. You know, I, I don't know whether you've experienced that with people saying that to you over here. Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely, yeah. But, I, you know, one band that I'm big into, and that is a shiny example of that, is Manowar. Manowar is, uh, people are obsessed with Manowar in Germany and Russia, you know, you know wherever, all, anywhere but here. Manowar hasn't played in America, I think, in like 10 years or something like that. And if they did play here, it would be at a club. But over there, they play big venues. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a different kind of fan base and loyalty. You're right, in, in Europe and in other countries. And, and look at Japan, prime example. You know, somebody like Danger Danger could do a reunion and have a huge uh, tour in Japan or, or Mr. Big or any of those guys. But you're right, they play here, they're going to play a bar or a small 
theatre or something. So, yeah, so, sad. So, as a guy who got into heavier music in the 90s and dropped a lot of the 80s bands, how surprised were you when the genre made a comeback in the early 2000s? You know, you know I don't think I was that surprised because kind of like what you and I were just talking about with corn and stuff. Like at that point I didn't want, I didn't want that music. I didn't want to listen to biscuit. I wanted to go back to my eighties. And I think, it, I, I think we all saw it in the, in the nineties because all the seventies stuff came back. You know, that's what, you know, the prime examples, look at kiss, kiss got back together with the makeup and everything. And they relived their seventies career in the nineties and the BGs were cool again. You know, it's the same thing. Like BGs were big in the seventies. They were lame in the eighties, then they're big in the in the nineties. So, so no, I wasn't surprised when it came back around. I, I figured, you know, I've seen it happen before that, you know, like the, the disco came back. So I kind of thought, so I, I didn't know that hair model would come back, but when it did, I wasn't surprised. What was the catalyst for it, though? Did it? Did you did you notice an uptake on, you know, radio airplay for all these bands? You know, I think it all came from the touring stuff. I, I don't, yeah. Nobody was really playing them. I just think that so I think universally people were just getting nostalgic, you know, and like we, we lost our bands for about 10 years. Now we're ready for them to come back. So I think a lot of people talk about, oh, was it the Rock Never Stops tour of like 2000 or something like that? It was Poison and Cinderella yeah. and Quiet Rock. A lot of people look at that like, man, that was that was kind of the beginning of it kind of getting cool again. So, you know, I just, I think that's just the way it is. People just kind of missed it and, and it was time you know it, it had to go away because it was oversaturation but then people kind of came back to their senses and said hey i want to have fun and i want to hear this music again yeah i think um maybe it's because people were a little bit older they had their kids they wanted to, yep. yeah they wanted to go and have some fun they didn't want to hear all this dreary music about some guy who was a multi-millionaire telling you how, how his life sucks you know? <laughs> <laughs> right exactly yeah that's yeah that's for sure yeah so, did you keep following the bands then in the last 20 years, or were you picking and choosing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like I, you know, for, for my bands that are always going to be my favorites, I, I've never lost track of them, you know what I mean? So, even, even like like I said, I even though I got into heavier bands or dabbled in some of the alternative and stuff like that, I never lost track of, of the bands that I love, you know what I mean? Like I said, I always was following Kiss. I always stayed in tune with Motley Crue. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, even and then and then maybe there was a little drop off, but even as it got to the late nineties, I was totally in tune with Britney Fox and, and Keel. I was I was keeping an eye on what they were doing. You know, if they do a tour or a live album or something like that. So I'll be honest, I don't I don't know of too many I ever really lost track of. Mm. Final question from me, Mike. Um, Frontiers Records, right? In a lot of ways, they've saved the melodic rock genre. And for a lot of these bands that we grew up in in the 80s, they're really the only label that will release product by them. You look at Winger, for example. Uh, yep. Whitesnake's last record was on Frontiers. Um, I'm curious what your take is on the label as a fan because they release a lot of product and they have all these projects together now. Multiple, with multiple albums and the bands of the guys have never played shows. Um, I have my take on it is that I find it hard to get invested in a lot of these because I feel that they're cut and paste. And I'm nothing against the musicians. I get it that they have to make a livelihood, but I come from the old school where 
the album came out and I was looking forward to hearing these songs live and with a, with 90% of these projects, um, they're never going to play a live show. And I find it hard sometimes to to keep in my investment in them. Like when they bring out a second or a third album, I'm like, yeah, I kind of heard the first one. I'm never going to see him do a show. So, you know, why bother? Yeah. Um, I think, I guess I look at it like it's hit or miss. You know what I mean? Like, like you said, the, the, the new winger is cool. Uh, I think Striper has done some really strong albums on Frontiers. Um, but then you're right. Sometimes they just throw a bunch of guys together, you know, Sweet and Lynch and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, 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 there's just a million of them. Now, now, now there's Jack Russell and, and um, Tracy Guns. Um, you know, they put Jeff Tate on the top of that sweet oblivion. They put Tony Harnell with the love killers. Right. So some of these are like orchestrated projects that the artists don't have a ton to do with. Some of them, there is a lot of stuff invested in it. So I always try to give it a, a listen, you know, and if it doesn't hit me, it doesn't hit me. If it does, it does. So yeah, it's, it's hit or miss though. I, I know, I totally know what you're saying. Um, it's like with anything, right? You don't have to be into it. You don't have to buy it. It's there for the people that want it. And some of it's really good. And some of it's just kind of in the middle. And I don't really pay a lot of attention to it, you know, so hit or miss, hit or miss. Some of it's great. Some of it's not so great. I'd love to know the decision process behind pairing this guy up with that guy. (laughs) Part of me thinks they're just throwing darts at a dartboard. They'll hang up all these (laughs) pictures. And they'll throw yeah, darts I, and, and whichever lands on this guy, yeah, we'll pair him with him. Um, yeah. But the, the the other issue I have with it is uh, none of the guys, uh, not all the time, but you look at the songwriting credits and it's like, here's the song, you guys play it. They're not actually writing any of it. And, Correct. And to me, it's like, well, what is your sound then? You know, right. it's like it's like this one one like the guy for Frontiers who writes a lot of the songs is uh, Alessandro Del Vecchio writes a lot of right. it, right? But I'm thinking, does he have all these songs on the wall? And he says, right, I'm going to hand this one to Robert McCauley, and then I'm going to hand this one to Revolution Saints, and then I'll hand this one to you know Michael Sweet, and they all sound the same. You know what I mean? It's like how, yeah. it's like can you get some? I I I much prefer. When I look at the songwriting credits for stuff like that, if the guys actually write the songs, I'm probably going to be more invested in it. A hundred percent. No, I, I totally know what you're saying. Like I said, it's a, you got to be you got to be picky and choosy with it. You know, what I mean, you got you got to kind of filter through what's just kind of shallow and, and kind of orchestrated, and what's like if somebody really poured their heart into it. Like you know, Winger, those guys are going to write their own stuff. You know what I mean? I, and, and they don't put out albums all the time. It's maybe. Maybe every three, four, five years, Winger does an album. So you can get behind that. But, like, this flavor of the week, take five guys, throw them together. Yeah, I'm probably going to stay away from them. Mm. Look, I'm, I'm glad Winger's putting out albums on Extreme. And I know Striper is just finishing up their, their new album. And I know Michael does, you know, they're all very hands on and all of that. Um, I think TNT are probably going to bring out a new record. I love when bands like that bring out new albums, but it's the projects are the ones that. I'm kind of, you know, like I had, I had yeah. George Lynch on talking about Lynch Mob and I could have helped him promote four records that he'd done that were coming out in the space <laughs> of five months. Do you know what I mean? It's like, 
Yeah. Part of me feels that I'm calling George and he's waiting for me to, to mention the record before he finds out which one I'm actually going to ask him to promote. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm I'm dead serious when I say that. And I'll get off the phone with someone like George and I'm I'm like, fuck, I even forgot to mention these two records that just came out. And I've already helped talk, talked about three of them, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. Every time I see something about George Lynch, I mean, George Lynch playing on, the end, the end machine, George Lynch, Lynch mob, George Lynch, uh, you know, Paulson Lynch. Yeah, he can have like four or five things at once. It's, you, you, there's no way you could even keep track of all of them. So I, so I had him on about the Babylon record. And um, I spent about 25 minutes with him talking about it. And I think I might have mentioned one other album that came out. And I didn't mention his solo rec, uh, instrumental record at all. And then the following week it was announced that the new end machine record was coming out. And he didn't even mention that to me. Right. Yeah. Like, like you know, these guys are doing fucking five or six records a year. You know, <laughs> it's it's insane, man. It is, but hey, it's new music, and at least it's there if we want to listen to it or not. You know, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, Mike, do you want to give out um the the social media sites you have for the show or where people can get a hold of the book? Yeah. So, um, 80s glam model cast, uh, you can watch it on YouTube. You can uh, check it out on all the podcast platforms. It's on, um, Spotify, Apple podcasts, all that good stuff. And the book, uh, predominantly is really, uh, barn or not, I'm sorry. Well, you can get it on Barnes and Noble, but Amazon is going to be your, your prime spot to get it. So a hair model journey, it's on Amazon. It's not expensive. It's, uh, it's got all the stuff that we talked about tonight talk to guys from britney fox from keel to from kiss to you know wasp you name it they're all all at sabotage a lot of the stuff we were talking about it's all it's all in the book and, and it's uh you know lot, it was a lot of fun it was you know probably similar to what you did i talked to guys for about five years and i just kind of compiled all that information with along with like my story of, of how i got into this music and the different concerts i went to and stuff so hopefully it'll take you back to that that fun time it really focuses on 86 to 91 kind of the heyday for for hair model and uh you can get it on paperback or, or or digital mike what did you learn about the genre after doing the book that maybe you didn't realize about the genre before you wrote it you know that's a that's a good question um you know, I think I think I found out. You know, talking to the artists, and you probably found out the same thing. Is like you kind of saw behind the curtain. You know, so as much as we thought everything was great, right? We yeah. didn't know that they were making the band rewrite the album, or this guy hated that guy, or you know, you thought these guys were making all this money, but in reality, you know, somebody was screwing them over. You know, yeah. So you found out a lot of things. Also, you probably heard this too. I didn't realize it as a kid, but. I thought it was really strong in like 89 and some artists will tell you that it was starting to fade out that early. But didn't know it. You know what I mean? They, they saw the writing on the wall in 89 and 90, but we didn't, you know? So, so there's this all, anytime you talk to an artist, they'll tell you the real thing that went on and, and you kind of saw what, what the media was feeding you or what you saw on MTV. And you, maybe you, you, you created a you know preconceived notion about what was going on, but it was always, and you say you could probably speak to that too, but the artists, are the ones that tell you um, what's really going on. And, and that's what's cool about the book. So you, you know, if you read the book, you might find out little things that you never even knew what, that was going on behind the scenes. So mm. the, the one thing I would say that I've learned since doing the show about that era is the different opinions that the musicians have on albums that 
they played on together. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. You know, not all of them were on the same page about where the band was going or with the guys that were even in the band at the time. And when you look back at interviews, because I've got a shit ton of Kerrang! still, and you'll all hear, oh, we had a great time recording it. We loved the producer. He was fantastic. Um, we can't wait to go on the road together. We're all the best of friends. And it's yep. all, a lot of it's complete bullshit. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. And, and, and that kind of stuff is going on today, too. You know, with anything, you got a product to sell. Yeah. You just, you know, there's, a lot, there's money behind Back then, especially, there's money behind it. You got to put your happy face on and sell it. You know, years later, then... And you can tell everybody what was really going on. So it's true. It's yeah, true. Yeah. Well, Mike, I'm going to leave you go. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Richie, great talking with you, man. And uh, I hope to chat with you again about the stuff. It was a good time. All right, Mike. Have a good rest of the night. Yes, you too, buddy. Take right. care. Take care. Bye. And there you go, Richie's chat with Metal Mike. And, you know, again, go out and support Mike and pick up a hair metal journey. And also be sure to check out the 80s glam metal cast. And if you do that, hey, let Mike know that you heard about that from us over here at Focus on Metal. And going all the way back around again to the beginning with the intro with Steve Blaze. Hey, also a reminder that uh, we are coming up quick on the spring tour with Lillian Axe and Girl School. So be sure to check out dates for that. I know Wayne's been posting those on, um, I can't keep calling it Twitter. I know it's X and I, whatever. I'm old and I keep saying the wrong freaking thing. But anyways... Wayne's been posting those dates up there, so check that out. There's um, tickets available. It's a short tour, but, I mean, come on. Lillian Axe and Girls School can't ask for more, so go out and uh, support those guys out there as well. So thanks for listening, and we will talk to you again very soon. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for myself, Richie, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, Have yourselves a great meta week, and until we talk to you again, as always, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.